The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24. As we turn, I'm going to pray one more time. Lord, I thank you that you are the death conqueror, the oppressor caregiver, the oppressed caregiver, the, the one who, who intrudes and brings salvation, answering the cries of brokenhearted people. Thank you that bruised reeds you don't break, that faintly burning wicks you do not snuff out, but rather in the proper time you lift us up. Meet us now as we look at your book. Open up your purposes to us. And may our hearts praise you and give you glory for being one who has chosen to set your affections on sinners to save those who could bring nothing to the table. We thank you for the hope of this text today. No more tears and death no more. We celebrate such things. In Christ we pray. Amen. This week I had the chance to just dig deeper in and go higher up delightfully into Isaiah 24 through 27. And with that comes tweaking of past understandings of structures So let me overview this text for us. God's desolation and recreation of his world. There's a promise in 24.1. If you've got your Bibles, please just open them with me and look at how this whole text is held together. 24.1, here's the promise. Behold, Yahweh, the Lord, will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Now you see in the very next verse, at the very beginning, it says, and it shall be. Now that is a four-word translation of a single word in Hebrew. And that single word is a marker within the discourse, giving clarity about structure. And we see that marker show up five times. One, two, three, four, five. We see it in 24.2, and it shall be. ESV translates it that way. The next time we see it is in 24.18. It's not rendered in any way in the ESV there. And it shall be that he who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. 24.21, and it shall be, and then an added element, on that day. And it shall be on that day, or in that day. Now, we see it again in, so 2420, that was 2418, uh, 20, no, 2421, and then we don't see it again until 27, 12, At the very end of this unit, 
We see it two times, and it will be in that day, and it will be in that day. So I'm taking the signal of Isaiah that each of these are unpacking the significance of the single promise that God's going to bring desolation on the earth. And the impact is five different results. And that's going to play into a, a number of significant elements. Last week we focused on Isaiah 24, and we're going to pick up in verse 21 right here. And it shall be in that day. And that is what's repeated in 27.12 and in 27.13, the exact same structure, and it shall be in that day. And it shall be in that day. And without the and it shall be part, within this one unit, 24.21 through 27.11, that's a pretty fair big text, right? We see that little phrase, in that day, show up by itself four times. So this is one big unit from 24.21 through 27.11. This is all part of that and it shall be section. And within that and it shall be section, four times at the front of verses, although they're not all clear in the ESV, the exact same prepositional phrase happens. In that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. And so I'm going to come in and tackle the in that day statements. Look with me and we'll just take a peek at them. Chapter 24, verse 20, 21. In that day, the day of God's judgment on the whole earth, the Lord will punish the host of heaven and heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison and after many days they'll be punished. That's what's going to happen in the day when God brings terror and judgment on the whole planet. We're getting there. Okay. I'm just talking about macro structure right now. 26.1, we see it again. In that day... The very same day of judgment, but which has been unpacked so far as a day when people are put in prison and the, the rebel of God and then let out and punished. In that day, a song will be sung in Judah. Chapter 27, verse 1. In that same day, the Lord with his hand and great and strong sword will punish the Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon in the sea. Okay? Ultimate punishment coming to the serpent of old that we've been battling since Genesis 3.15. And since Genesis 3, rather. And then finally, verse 2 of chapter 27, in that same day... A pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. That is, the Garden of Eden. Realize that we've been anticipating since chapter 1. Now, how I'm understanding all of these in that day statements is it's like 
You and I are Joshua and his troop coming up to not Jericho, but the kingdoms of the world where God has decided to overcome and establish his chief kingdom over all things. Every in that day is simply walking around the mountain and getting a different perspective on the same reality. Describing different aspects of the same reality as we go around the same, the same focused point. And yet we're going to see it from different angles. Every in that day is unpacking different aspects of the day of the Lord and what it will look like. For Isaiah, it's all future. And before us is the question, how are we to understand time frame with respect to these, or this oracle? But before we can talk time, we will get there. We're going to touch on that. I mentioned something last week that intrigued many. It's why you came back, some of you. I, I, I used the word millennium. Falcon. And, no, the, so, we're going to touch on that, but I, I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert that this is a two-week enterprise, looking at the time. Okay, so we're looking at description one, 2421. The declaration is, in the day, in the very day that the Lord empties the earth and makes it desolate and twists its surface and scatters its inhabitants, that's 24 verse 1, in that very day it shall come to pass that in that day the Lord will punish, here it is John, the host of heaven. The punishment of the wicked and the salvation of the oppressed. This unit, this in that day unit, is going to run from 24, 21, all the way up to the end of 25. And that's going to be significant. Because everything we're about to read, which includes the statement of a group being imprisoned for a time and then punished thereafter, which includes the vision of he will swallow up death forever and death will be no more, even before that, which includes the image in verse 6 of 25 that the Lord will prepare a feast a future eschatological feast of rich food is being anticipated in this text. I won't eat it again with you until I come again. And all of this, though, is not different aspects of the common vision. It's one aspect. He's just going to walk through from one angle and give us a perspective on the future. And that's going to be informative for us when we consider how John, in the book of Revelation, is actually reading this text, how he's thinking about time. But before we consider John, we're going to consider Isaiah. Two basic units, as I'm seeing it, focused on the actions of God, Verse 21, on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison. 
And then after many days, while they've been shut up in the prison, these, these enemies of God, enemies of His purposes, enemies of His people, then after many days of being imprisoned, then they'll be punished. And at that time, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. We'll talk about these things. For the Lord of hosts reigns, has reigned, and on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory is before His elders. So, there's elders in the presence of God's glory. And as the glory comes out, the glory is so bright, it appears that it's overshadowing any light of the moon or any light of the sun. It's as if they're ashamed. They're, they're not even being seen anymore. They've, they've hidden themselves because the light has, has gone forth. And because it's gone forth, we don't see these, these luminaries. All that is stated with reference to the elevation of God in Mount Zion. Now, at 25.1, there's a, a shift. Yahweh's action, Yahweh will punish. That's what it said in verse 21, with the result that they will be gathered. At that time, the moon is confounded. Why? Because Yahweh reigns. But in chapter 25, verse 1 then, there seems to be this side comment, I think, that unpacks what these elders who are experiencing glory at the end of verse 23 of 20, chapter 24, what are, they, what are they seeing? What are they, what are they expressing? And we get a glimpse of them before verse 6 picks up again on the mountain image. So verse 23 of chapter 24 ended with Mount Zion and Jerusalem, Yahweh's reigning over there. And then in verse, 20, uh, verse 6, it just says, on this mountain. And so it continues. In the day when punishment comes and the glory of God shines forth, coming from the Mount Zion of verse 23, on that mountain the Lord of hosts will act again. He acted in verse 21 of 24, with punishment, and now he will move in order to make for all peoples a rich feast. So I'm seeing action of God at the end of 24, action of God picking up in verse 6 of chapter 25, and between that, unpacking for us what's going on where God is, is verses 25-1 through 5. And there's celebration that's happening there because I think these elders are those who were oppressed, who were broken, and who have experienced amazing deliverance. Remember, chapters are not inspired. Chapters didn't come in until 1,250 years after Jesus. After the Bible's been established for a very long time, we get chapter divisions. And so they were put in there so we can find verses easily as a group. But we don't want to necessarily use them in our, to control our bio, biblical interpretation. That wasn't their point. 
So, this feast is then moved, what, what follows it is this celebration around this one who has delivered and death is overcome and they sing out in verse 9 of chapter 25, Behold, this is our God, we've waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord, we've waited for Him, so let us be glad and rejoice because the salvation that we've longed for has finally come. We have a short imprisonment followed by punishment due to the reign of God. We have elders praising God in association with that imagery. And then all of that is followed by a feast and a celebration that death is no more. That's the basic framework of this unit. So we enter in to answer John's question. The temporary imprisonment and future punishment of all those hostile to the Lord's reign. The host of heaven versus the kings of the earth. So the host of the heaven, the language is at times used of the luminaries, the sun, moon, and stars. They are the heavenly hosts. But more often, it refers to the spiritual armies of God. The heavenly beings that are actually put in... They're, they're not only worshiping the Lord. We're told elsewhere that, that there's actual spiritual beings that are overseeing nations. You remember when Daniel prayed and Michael wanted to show up, but he got halted, Michael the angel, the heavenly being, one of these hosts, he got halted because the prince of Persia, that is another heavenly being, held him up. They entered into a, a scuffle. Paul in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, the rulers of this dark age. There's authority figures. And yet, Colossians 1, 16 tells us that the Son, by the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Like, like what, Paul? What are the invisible things you're talking about? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. They were created through Jesus for Jesus. And then it's only one chapter later when we're told at the cross Jesus disarms, using the exact same words, all authorities and rulers. We're talking about spiritual powers. And in this day, what we're told is that the host of heaven, in heaven, and the kings of the earth, on the earth, will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. And they'll be there for some time, and then after a length of time, they'll be punished. So, on the surface... Isaiah is anticipating a day when in light of the reign of God, verse 23, the Lord of hosts has reigned on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. 
in light of the reign of the Lord, who is ultimately the king, all superficial powers that might be contrary to him are now overcome. It reminds me of Daniel chapter 2, where there's that giant image of the statue that's given to Nebuchadnezzar with the head of gold and the chest of silver or bronze and the the uh, thighs of, okay, bronze, so silver, bronze, and then the feet of iron mixed with clay, ten toes. And then God says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. It's only one chapter later that he wants to be the whole thing, not just the head, but he wants the whole statue, so he makes the full-body statue and calls everyone to bow down to him. But in that chapter... We're told, you, king, represent the head of gold, who's over Babylon, the chief of all kingdoms. But you will be followed by three other kingdoms. And in the rest of the book, we're told their names. You've got the Medes and the Persians, is the chest. Then the thighs of the Greeks. And then the feet made of iron and clay, ten pieces, were not, they're not named. I think it's the Roman Empire. It's during that period that the Messiah comes, we're told in the book of Daniel. But the point is that there's this kingdom, and then what happens? There's a, a little stone that he sees, and that stone grows and comes and smashes all the kingdoms of men. And as it's expanding, it becomes a giant mountain, and it's the kingdom of God. All the powers of earth, which Daniel portrays as beasts, in contrast to the ultimate imager of God, the one like the Son of Man, all the kingdoms of the earth will perish. But here what it says is that there will be a window where they'll be in prison. We want to figure out what that means, they'll be in prison. But what's clear is that after a time, they'll be punished by the God who reigns over all things. Imprisoned before the punishment. And it's not just earthly judgment, it's also heavenly judgment. So turn with me over to chapter 27, verse 1. Or I've actually, I guess I got it up on the screen. In that day, we're told, that day when future judgment comes, it shall be that in that day, the Lord with His hand and great sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent. Leviathan the twisting serpent, and He'll slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, serpent imagery, that grows out of Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He deceives Adam and Eve. They eat of the fruit. On the day that they eat of it, they'll surely die. The serpent has power over that death. He's brought it. And now they're underneath his rule. But Satan himself is underneath the rule of God. And so in verse 14, it tells us that Cursed you will be more than any other creature on the earth. 
in the dust, you will crawl and eat. And there will be friction between your offspring, so there's going to be offspring of the serpent, and there's going to be the woman who's also going to have offspring, Eve. And there will be friction between your offspring and her offspring, but her offspring will bruise your head, even though you'll bruise his heel. The serpent. Now what's intriguing is that Creation began in a watery chaos. It was dark, and there was water everywhere, and then in comes light, and up comes ground. From that point on, water is often portrayed as the image of chaos, and it's associated, ultimately, with the same beast, the serpent. He's like the darkness that needs to be overcome with light. He's like the sea that needs to be destroyed. And when we get to Exodus, and we find Pharaoh associated with this water ordeal, and Pharaoh is destroyed in the sea, it's not strange, as we're going to see next week, that Pharaoh, throughout the prophets and the Psalms, is often portrayed as a dragon being slain in the sea. He's a picture in the story of salvation wanting to kill the Son of God. Remember, that's what Israel was. They were His firstborn son. He was the serpent. Remember the battle of the serpents between Moses and Pharaoh's wise men? That's the very first standoff. And Pharaoh is standing there, most likely with a big serpent sticking right on his helmet. It was the image of the Egyptians, the image of his godness, and he was the embodiment of the chief god of the Egyptian pantheon, Re. And Yahweh is able to use his serpent to overcome the serpent figure, Pharaoh. He's just a picture, though, of what was going on in the Garden of Eden. So that the serpent is the figure of ultimate evil from the very beginning, and it carries all the way on into the book of Revelation, when the dragon is ultimately slain. And the sea is no more. Now what we read in chapter 24 is that heavenly hosts that were rebellious against God, will be put in prison for a time and then punished. 27 tells us that one of those beasts, a key figure called Leviathan, the serpent, is going to be slain. So 27.1 does not focus on the imprisonment, it only focuses on the final punishment. But it identifies the fact that at that time, when God's bringing punishment on the heavenly spiritual beings, on the rulers of heaven and the rulers of earth that have been in animosity to Him, chief among them, and it's the only one that He names, no other kings mentioned in the text, it simply focuses on the prince of all of those spiritual powers and declares, calls Him the serpent, and then declares, this dragon will be slain. 
So even though in chapter 24, going back there, 24, 21, and 22, it doesn't mention the serpent here, by the time we move around the mountain and get over to chapter 27, we recognize, oh, we're supposed to read the serpent here. He's one of the hosts of the heavens, I believe, who is going to be put into prison for a time. Why? And then finally punished. And we read about his punishment in 27.1. Uh, this question is the host of heaven. And heaven seems to be a concept that I'm not sure what, I mean, from my childhood, I think of heaven is where God is, you know, all that. And what you're saying is this, this host of heaven doesn't necessarily reflect that as so much as a spiritual realm. Or, or is my concept of heaven just completely too childish? I, I mean, I'm trying to figure out what, why, why the host of heaven. I, I'm having, I understand where you're going with the serpent and all of that. That makes total sense. But the host of heaven confuses because of what heaven means. What does Genesis 1, 1 say, John? Take us back there. Good, good, loud, good and loud. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. The heavens and the earth. Well, it's the same, same term, no difference. Heavens and earth. Now, that is the two poles of the universe. And it summarizes then everything, I believe. Everything that fits in the middle. Now, if all we had was that verse, we would say, is it just focusing on the sphere where the luminaries are placed, the sun, moon, and stars, versus the earth where the moose and the northern pike exist? Or is it talking about something more? And if we look in Psalm 148, Psalm 148, it's a commentary unpacking this image of new creation, but it breaks it down in two parts, the heavens and the earth, building directly off of Genesis 1.1, but now in association with the new creation that King Yahweh has done through his anointed, the Messiah, who's reigning over all by the time we get to the end of the Psalter. Here's what we read in Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Now, when the biblical author thinks about that, what is he thinking of? Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. That's our word right in our text. But then he goes on to say, Praise Him also, sun and moon. Praise Him, you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. That's the heavens. And when we think of the heavens, we're thinking of all the luminaries which serve as pointers to the heavenly court. In the book of Job... The day came when all the sons of God were to appear before the throne of Yahweh. And the Satan was there. The deceiver was among them. They are the heavenly council, the heavenly host. And they are the ones that do Yahweh's bidding. They are His army. 
They are His extension, His his hands and His feet working His providences on the planet. That's the heavens. And then Psalm 148 contrasts it with, praise the Lord from the earth. Heavens includes both angels, the spiritual realm, and the sun, moon, and stars. But on the earth, you get the great sea creatures and all the deeps. Praise Him, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth. That's, our, that's in our text. All peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, together old men and children, let everything praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. So the image here, we'll all finish it, three lines left. He's raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him, praise the Lord. So the image of earth and heaven, sorry, earth and heaven is completeness. And in this instance, all the spiritual and all the material rebels against God are somehow being portrayed as being held off, withheld for a season. And then after that season, punished. Brother Chris. The heights is mentioned in Psalm 148. I didn't come prepared to answer that question exactly as he's saying it, so I just went there, but I didn't have my Hebrew text in front of me, so that's, that's good. So the contrast isn't specifically between the same heavens and the earth that we see in Genesis 1.1. Give me one second. So it is, it's the, uh, and it shall come about in that day that Yahweh will visit on the host. That's a very, I just wonder how, if that happens anywhere else. The host of the heights, in the heights. The high ones. It may actually be targeting pride. The, but then among them, chapter 27, 1, would be the serpent, the Leviathan. And on the kings of the land, on the land. And it's, so it's not the earth, that's, that's good, thank you for noting that. It's not the earth versus the heaven, it's the heights versus the ground, And the ground is specifically what in Genesis chapter 3.17 is cursed. So all that are identified with the curseness and haven't overcome it through blessing, judgment on you, and then this sphere of the heights, which could just be proud ones or it could be a spiritual sphere. So thanks for drawing attention to that, Chris. It's not... It's not at all common. Usually the ho- it's usually the host of the heavens, so that's just what I was assuming. But it's obviously not what it says. Brother David. Is that a little bit like what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2? Uh, the rulers of the kingdom of the air. The ruler of the kingdom of the 
spiritual realm? In the, the realm of the high ones, I was interpreting it as spiritual realm. The wording suggests it could be broader than that. But the 27.1 identifies that at the very least included in this group is the serpent, the ultimate spiritual evil. So, and he's the one, in Ephesians chapter 2, you brought that up. Um, how does Ephesians 2.1 go? Uh, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, held captive by the prince of this world, having your mind reshaped by the prince of the power of the air, who's at work in all the sons of disobedience. That one. That's right, the one who's in Bhutan, the serpent overseeing all the blindness that's at work in that land. So, that's right, that's right. Now, is it legitimate to say that if this serpent is going to be bound for a time, oh my, look at the time. Bound for a time, if he's going to be bound for a time and then punished, is it legitimate to think that that's happening right now? Is there any way in which the serpent is already bound? And we're going to have to pick that up next week, but here's the text. Here's the text that's at stake. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in the hand, in his hand, the key to the bottomless pit. And there was a great chain. He seized the dragon, the same one, the serpent that is mentioned in chapter 27.1, who we're told there in Isaiah 27.1, will be punished completely. And whom I've said is in the margin in 24.22, as one of those beings, high, elevated of heart beings, who will be held captive for a time and then punished. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. He bound him for a period of time, a thousand years. He threw him into the pit. He shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Is this future? Or is the fact that the Great Commission is actually working and it hadn't worked, it hadn't been operative for all the centuries of the Old Covenant? Is, there, is that what we're talking about? That he wouldn't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Isaiah doesn't mention that part. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So there's people up there around the throne with Yahweh who have authority to judge. Also, I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Are you even now seated with King Jesus in the heavenlies? 
we have to ask ourselves, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. How do we understand to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Now, we'll consider how do we fit this together next week. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death, which is the ultimate defeat, which chapter 27, 1 talks about when Satan is finally, definitively put down and all of his minions crushed under the feet of the church. Romans 16. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So, uh, time is up. But we'll, this is, I still didn't get through chapter 25, which was my goal for today. Um, it, it could be, and that's okay. But here's the, see where you fit coming into this room today. Your understanding of the future, because Isaiah is the, I'm not just doing this because it's like fun. Believe me, this is going to be challenging. But, but Isaiah is the one who's compelling me to go here because John uses Isaiah in Revelation 20. So we have to answer it if we're going to understand this vision. Here's one, one view. It happens to be the view of John Piper. And that is that the thousand years is all in the future. And that the ruling and reigning with God is something that comes after the church age, after the heightened intensity of the tribulation, and then for a window in the future, all the evil and all the chaos against the church will be quieted for a brief window call it a thousand years, for an extended amount of time, and then only after that, the last judgment. Now, this is called the pre historic premillennialism, post-tribulational version. The pre-tribulational version is associated with dispensationalism, and it looks the same except... The idea is that you've got to get the church out of here before the tribulation because the church isn't going to undergo the great persecution. They'll be preserved from it. So for a seven-year window, roughly, all hell will break loose and then Christ will return with his church and then we will reign for this thousand-year period when Satan is bound up. And then the last judgment when the serpent is fully slain and all evil is done away with. Postmillennialism. In the previous two views, Jesus returns before the millennium. In postmillennialism, he doesn't return until after the millennium. That is, we're in the church age right now, but we're not in the millennium. But it will get progressively better and better. Jesus won't be reigning on earth, but finally there will be this time where the church is the main voice. A purified, true church is the main voice over all the earth. And then Jesus will return and set up his kingdom and destroy everything. Finally, 
Amillennialism doesn't actually mean there's no millennium. Ah, millennium, millennialism. It simply means that the millennium is happening right now. It's inaugurated. That the thousand years with Jesus seated on the throne is not something in the future. It's something we're experiencing today. And that's and what that would mean is that the binding of Satan is something that's already happening right now. And at the end of the church age, Jesus will return and everything will happen just like that. It will get worse at the end, most amillennialists say. And then Christ will return and everything will be fixed in that same moment, not stretched out any longer. Pastor Sam Storms, whom many of us know and love, he's preached at our church, he's served at the pastor's conference, that's a book, uh, he's, he's written one of the main books on that view, affirming that this is what Isaiah was teaching and what John believed in Revelation. So, I don't know where we'll get next week, but, um, but come back because I, I, I want to use the text. We're just, I'm not going to talk systems. I'm going to talk the text, and we're just going to try to... I'm going to be able to share with you how I'm putting it together, and you'll be able to just open up your Bibles and test it and see where the bumps might be, and, and then in the end you might just say, I just want to be a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out. Um, and that's okay to... All these will be on my website, yep. So, we, we didn't get very far today. But let me pray, let me pray. Father, um, all this I offer to you. We thank you that you are the one who has reigned and is reigning. Thank you that you hate evil and you will put an end to it. And all of us take comfort in such truths. Go with us now. Preserve our faith. Prove yourself worthy of our hope. Thank you that you are ever trustworthy, ever true. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.